ready? Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei pri hagahafen, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech olam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. All of that. <laughs> now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and I pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruchu, the call to worship. Baruchu et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha. Ba'eli Madonai Michamocha Nedar Bakodesh Nora Tehilot 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu et derech haYeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et Hashabbat la'asot et Hashabbat la'doratam berit olam b'nei Ovayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. Keshishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Bechol levavcha, uvchol nafshecha, uvchol meyodecha. Vahayu hadevarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Vashinantam levanecha, vidibartabam, vashivtacha, babethcha, uvlechtecha, viderech, uvshuchbecha, uvkumicha. Ukshartam leot al yedecha, vahayu le totafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our Erev Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. Our Torah portion for this Sabbath comes from the book of Deuteronomy. We are in uh, chapter 21. We're winding down our uh, Torah cycle for the year. We're coming to the final portions here in Deuteronomy. We are specifically in uh, chapter 21, and our portion begins... At verse 10, with these words, it says, when you go out, and the Hebrew for that is kitese, when you go out, kitese. And it's talking about, interestingly enough, when you go out to battle, when you go out. Um, there's a very famous teaching um, that, well, I, I don't know if it's a famous teaching. I think it's a famous teaching. I like it, um, in which that there's a marriage counselor fellow. And he talked about the concept of a husband leaving his house and coming back to his home for his wife, that he has two swords in his life. The first sword that he has is a silver sword. And when he leaves the house, he goes out to work. And he says, basically, when a man goes out of his house and he goes out to work, he's going out to do battle. You know, it's a struggle. He's working. And, and he uses this silver sword that he has. And this sword is for cutting. I mean, he whacks and he cuts and he works. This is a working sword uh, for it. And that's how he accomplishes his profession and his work. Now, he comes home, and according to this teacher, he said he, the, the man is to put that sword away. He's to set it, uh, set it aside, and he's to go into the honored place of the house, you know, like the mantle above the fireplace. That's the picture he gave. And he's to take down this other sword, which is a gold sword. And this gold sword, a great sword of honor, is the one that he polishes. He doesn't use the sword aggressively like in combat at all. This is for it looks good and it's to be stylish and be admired and so he polishes it. He makes sure it's nice and clean. And that's the one that he uses to guide his house, his wife and his children. He doesn't use 
his authority as a man to slash and cut. He uses it, and in fact, this teacher he referred to, he uses the sword with the reflections of light that come from the sword. In other words, he flashes the sword in a certain way, and it casts a light, catches their eye. It's not because he got hit by the sword. It's because he caught their eye with how beautiful the sword is. And he talks about that sword represents respect. A man, you know, he uses both swords to get respect. Now, the respect that he gets from other men when he's out of the house is one type of respect, but the respect he gets inside of his house, that's a completely different kind of respect. It's not like the one you get from your workmates and other people like that. However, uh, in some men's houses, um, he doesn't receive respect. He will take his gold sword in there and very gently he'll tap on his wife's shoulder and he'll go, mm, what do you think? And she'll say something like, I think not. And she'll discourage him. She'll ridicule him. And effectively what she does is she just knocks the sword right out of his hands. It, and, and the reason why it gets knocked out because he's holding it gently as gentle as he can, not aggressively. And so when it gets knocked out and it falls to the ground, he's now highly, highly embarrassed and feels disrespected. And what he has to do is if he's going to be successful in his marriage is he's got to pick that sword back up again and go back in there and polish it some more and clean it up and reapproach and 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 so forth. What happens in a lot of homes uh, when a marriage goes south is that kindness goes out the door and treachery comes in. And a lot of husbands will come home and instead of putting that silver sword away and picking up the gold sword, they, they're so discouraged by what has happened to them on the gold sword. They don't know how to polish it right. The wife doesn't respond, whatever. They don't get the respect they think they're entitled to. Because he doesn't get the need he has for respect from his wife and in his own home, he just hangs onto that silver sword, and guess what he does with that? He just comes in, whacks and cuts and does battle. Tears up his own house. And that's when treachery comes into the house. The opposite of kindness and respect and honor and all of those things. A marriage is successful when the wife respects the husband when the husband provides and prefers the wife. Those are, that meets the two needs. The wife has the security need. The husband has the respect need. If, if that wheel is turning to where those needs are being met, that marriage grows, that's a happy, happy house. But if there's an interruption, if all of a sudden the woman says, well, I don't think he deserves to be respected, I'm not going to respect him, well, then he says, well, I'm, I'll tell you what I can do. I can become treacherous, and, and, and I will be a threat to your security. I'll, I'll, I'll take away the provision you need, and, and I won't prefer you. I'll leave you high and dry and so forth, and you'll be, your life will hang in the balance, and, and, and treachery enters into it. This is the reason for divorces. When a couple first comes together, they've got the respect and the provide and preferring down locked in. I mean, that, that, that's the honeymoon. But soon afterwards, they got to make some decisions about how are we going to get along with one another. And uh, by the way, 
the number one thing that counselors will try to explain to them is you need to work on being kind. Be kind with your words, kind with your behavior. If you're not kind, you'll never get to the point where you love. And this Torah portion is addressing that. Uh, the word kindness doesn't really show up very often, but the whole Torah portion is about examples of being kind. And it, this, you'll say, well, what is there to be kind about when you go out to battle? Well, it goes on to explain. When you go out to battle and uh, you take a captive woman, that you're supposed to be kind to her and you're supposed to give her a certain amount of time for her to mourn the loss of her previous family and that if she doesn't want to be with you, you're to release her. You're not to enslave her. You're not to abuse her. You're not to hurt her. You're to be kind to her. It, it, listen to that. It, it, you know, when you go out to battle, you will be kind to your captives. Only the Torah could say such a thing. Well, it doesn't stop there. It talks about being kind to your children. It talks about, are you ready for this? Being kind to the dead. The whole idea of being respectful toward dead persons, it's a Torah commandment. And most of us innately inside of our soul and spirit know we should be kind to dead people. That's the reason why we do funerals. That's the reason why we're, there's great care taken in funeral homes to dress the, the deceased, to bury them in a nice casket, to set them in a gravestone and, and, and the ground in their burial, and so to honor them, to be kind to them. For it. It's a Torah commandment. Not being kind to, to the dead and not burying them is, is a terrible transgression of the Torah. The reason why Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took Yeshua's body down off the cross on the day he died and took him and put him in a tomb. They were carrying out an act of kindness. It's a Torah commandment that you're not to let the body remain for the day. You're to take care of it in the day that he dies. And uh, and they took him down and they buried him. It was an act of kindness according to the Torah. And we see it illustrated for us in this particular case. Now we come to, in chapter 22, we come to kindness toward a neighbor. And then we come to what we call, this is a trivia question for those of you who study Torah. Uh, you all know what is the greatest commandment. In the Torah, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. But what is the least commandment in the Torah? By the way, Yeshua made reference to it. There in Matthew chapter 5, he said, If any man teaches you uh, to, to, to annul the least of these commandments and teaches you to annul them, he shall be least in the kingdom. So what commandment was Yeshua referring to? Well, it's in this portion, and it's in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 22. If you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the way, 
and any tree uh, in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall certainly let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself in order that it may be well with you and you may prolong your days. Being kind to a bird's nest. Let the mother go. You can have the eggs, or you can have the young chicks if you want. Um, and But you won't hurt the mother. You won't take it to. Um, it's a simple act of kindness. It's, it's the smallest act of kindness to a small animal. By the way, are you aware that one of the things they've discovered about serial killers? I mean, these people who are terrible killers. In fact, in the world that we have today, uh, these people that get guns and they go and they shoot everybody and so forth. Do you know what is one of the characteristics they can find in their background? They're abusive to small animals. Cat, dog, whatever. They, they, they've learned how to kill and harm and learned how to be unkind with small animals before they learned how to be unkind with people. And by the way, the act of murdering somebody and killing somebody is really, there is no kindness in it whatsoever. And so the Torah commandment says, at the lowest level, you have to be kind. And I've always taught this as a spiritual principle, that if you want to learn how to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, why don't you start off with being kind toward him? Be kind toward one another. Before you learn how to love your neighbor, be kind to him. Be hospitable to him. Those are the building stepping stones uh, that lead to that. Um, after that, we have um, kindness to a guest in your house, the hospitality, as I talked about. And then there's all different kinds of acts of kindness. The, I saw a bumper sticker one time. It says, do random acts of kindness. Couldn't agree more. That is Torah. That is the teaching of Torah to be kind and act in a kind way. The, um, uh, when you get to chapter 23, 23 now we're going to hear something that's highly contrasted from that topic. Let me read it to you. Uh, verse 3, chapter 23, verse 3, it says, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the sanctuary of the Lord. Why is that God said they're not going to come in, into his house? It's answered in the very next verse. Because they did not meet you with food and water at, on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Peor, Pethor, Mesopotamia, to curse you. In other words, they, didn't, they, they went out of their way to speak and to be an unkind to you. Let me just tell you, it's a natural thing, and I'm certain you have had this experience. I've had it, um, where you run into somebody, and they intentionally, not, not accidentally, they intentionally do something that is just extremely unkind to you. You don't forget that. You make some hard decisions about that person right now. And it, it, it's not about you. It's not at the level where they hated you or that they 
loved you or didn't love you. They were unkind to you. The snooty uh, person who uh, was supposed to be hospitable but treated you with without kindness um, and, and embarrassed you and made you feel bad and, and, and they hurt you with their lack of kindness and an act of unkindness. God has real strong feelings about this. And this is um, uh, the levels of kindness, how kind you are to different people, determines your entrance into the assembly. If you want to go into another congregation and be a part of it, you're, it, it's go, you're going to be received into it based on what your level of kindness is toward those people. If you come in and act cold toward them, you're not going to be getting in very far. If you come in and you're gracious and, and, and kind to them and speak in a kind way, you'll be received, and you'll be received well into it. The same thing is true with the house of the Lord. Now, with that said, for our Torah portion, let's uh, quickly shift now to um, our um, our Hof Torah portion. So our Hof Torah portion for this particular Torah portion comes from Isaiah chapter 54, and it's verse 1. Now, earlier, and when we're going through the Hof Torahs, we looked at Isaiah 54 at verse uh, 11, but now we're looking at verse 1. And going along with the subject of kindness and so forth, our Hofdor portion comes from verse 1, which says, this is Isaiah 54, Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting, cry aloud. You have not travailed, for the sons of the desolate one shall be more numerous than the sons of the married woman. And enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out your curtains for your dwelling, spare not, lengthen your cords, Strengthen your pegs, and you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess the nations, and they will resettle the desolate cities. Verse 4, fear not, for you will not be put to shame, neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. Uh Tying back into the kindness thing of our Torah portion, this particular passage in Isaiah 54 is addressing the kind of the emotional response of when you shift from something terrible to something kind. And, and the moment that you come out of a bad situation and suddenly kindness is shown to you, that can be exhilarating. That can be very, very positive. Uh, for you. And that's essentially what the Lord is saying. And one of the key things, and I really like this passage that says this, when a person has been treated with unkindness, that devalues that person. They literally will feel a measure of the same thing as shame. They'll feel shamed because when a person is being unkind, that's what they're doing. They're devaluing you. They're attempting to devalue you, um, being critical to you, being nasty, not unkind to you. It's to shame you. It's to devalue you, put you down. Well, what the Lord is saying here in this thing, he says, "That's we're going to turn that around. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame, 
Neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth. You're going to forget what it was like when you were being treated with unkindness. Again, the Hofdors of Consolation is this incredible preaching, teaching sermon about the, the need to comfort God's people while they're dispersed in the nations. And as I shared with you last week, the sequence of these teachings, just to review just real quickly, summarize it for you. The feeling is when Israel was scattered into the nations, they'd been forsaken of God, and people have taught that. But the fact of the matter is they've not been forsaken of God. God himself has said, I realize that you've been afflicted, you've been so forth, and, and yes, I forsook you for a short moment. That was to judge you. However, I, the one, am going to be the one that comforts you. I'm going to be bringing you back. And when I bring you back, I'm going to, uh, you know, you're, you're going to rise and shine like never before. And, and the world is going to be coming to you to see how, what I've done with you. And you'll be donning robes of righteousness. You're going to be, you're going to be the bride at the wedding of the Lamb. That's the whole story of that. And part of the story and the whole idea about being comforted is how are you comforted? Uh, when, when you're in a traumatic situation, somebody comes up to comfort you, what are, what are they doing? Do they come up and say, oh, I love you? No. They come up and they treat you with kindness. They kindly approach you. Can I get something for you? Can I assist you? Can I help you to something? They're expressing efforts to be kind to you. That's how you get comforted. And so this whole Hofdors of Consolation all ties into, uh, in the center portion here, of being kind. God has chosen to show compassion and to be kind uh, to us. That is what this Hoftor portion is trying to tell us in these first 10 verses of Isaiah 54, which tries, ties back to our Torah portion, which is part of this great teaching of the Hoftorahs, these final portions, the seventh one. This, uh, this particular Hoftorah is the um, a fifth one in the series of the seven Hoftorahs of Consolation. We will, again, continue to look at the other ones in the next couple of weeks as we come to the conclusion of the Torah cycle this year and come to the fall holidays. So with that, Shabbat Shalom to all of you. Shalom. If you would please now turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. Hold your finger at chapter 9 where our Brit Hadashah portion will begin for this week and let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, uh, for this Sabbath. We thank you for this week. We thank you, Lord, for giving us this time of rest uh, that we can come together and uh, turn our attention to you, uh, have a convocation with our fellow brethren, uh, joining together with fellowships and family. And Father, we thank you once again for this opportunity to dig into your word. Father, Father, I pray that we would be encouraged and strengthened uh, this Sabbath with this teaching. We bless you and we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. 
Our Torah portion, Kitetse, has a great number of commandments and instructions in it. Um, there's lots of miscellaneous commandments that are given to us, and there are many different routes and passages that we can go to that parallel some of those commandments. And so it's my hope and endeavor to uh, dig into the Brit Hadashah and to hit some of the high points of uh, the New Testament readings that relate directly back to some of those commandments that come from our Torah portion. In Deuteronomy chapter 25 at verse 4, we are given the instruction to not muzzle out the ox that treads out the grain. Now, we can take that commandment literally, of course, and when we're talking about a, if you have an ox and you simply are doing, that ox is doing the work, that you're not to limit or hinder that ox from doing what it's supposed to be doing because it can hurt the ox in the process of doing that. It's kind of like doing exercise with a mask over your mouth and uh, struggling to breathe in the process of that. Don't recommend that, even though that's become kind of the norm in these days, but um, that is, you know, the literal interpretation of the commandment. Of course, anyone who has uh, spent any time digging into the Word, it's not just about literal interpretation, but it, how does it spiritually apply to us? For those of us that work in ministry, this uh, commandment very much applies, and I'm going to take you here to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where the Apostle Paul is teaching us that that commandment about not muzzling out the ox that treads out the grain has to do with those that do good for the household of faith. Those that labor and work, and we can take a, we can, you can take a secular, secular approach to this, that when you have a, a job or you have uh, employees, you have, own a business, and that you have somebody who's working for you, and an employee is working hard and laboring for your organization, for your company, and, uh, and providing means for income to come in and for you to be successful, that obviously you don't want to run that person so hard into the ground that they get burned out, they want to leave, or that you actually harm them in the process of them doing their job. This is good counsel to anybody running a secular business. This is also counsel to those that work in ministry, that labor to, to minister, to benefit the brethren, and in any walk of life in which there is a service provided by somebody to somebody else, we want to make sure that those people don't get burned out, don't be uh, rode hard, hung up wet, and, 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 and then left to you know, left out in the sun to, to, to dry out and, and not be able to do their job anymore. That's what we want to pay attention to. So, going here to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to begin at verse 4, where the Apostle Paul is giving us and teaching this. He says, Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take um, along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and, and uh, Caiaphas? Um, or sorry, uh, Cephas, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, and who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle out an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope. And he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. And if we have sought spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap 
your material things. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have, used, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the, the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than um, that anyone should make me boasting, make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. This is where Paul is laying out this entire argument by the fact that those that do and work and labor for the Lord, that they get to be partakers of those things that they do and they work and they labor so that they might, that their needs might be met. And he referenced the priests and the Levites who, when they worked the altar service, they were partakers of those offerings and that they were able to, um, to partake of those offerings, eat of them, and that they were able to be taken care of and satisfied. He also speaks, of course, that the fact that the apostles who would work and who would labor to preach the gospel, that shouldn't they be allowed to receive the blessings of the gospel? Who should, wouldn't they be able to, if there's any benefit to be gained from the teaching and preaching of the gospel, that they would also be able to be taken care of? And he's making that argument. Now, what, what I'm assuming here, actually, is that Paul, this was probably an argument that may have been given to Paul at this time, that if he was out there traveling, doing all of this work, that suddenly he was starting to uh, reap some of the benefits of this traveling and this preaching, but that there might be somebody that come along that has an issue with that. Unfortunately, even today's messianic movement, we have seen some of those same uh, arguments being made. That those that some might say that uh, if we ever charge for the ministering or the teaching of the gospel or the teaching of God's word, such as for our teaching materials in this ministry or for broadcasts that we produce. And it's not just us. Other ministries have uh, interacted with uh, these questions before. And that the question is, is that should anything that we produce as a ministry be free to all the people, no matter what? No matter what, it's, it, it's, it's to be free, it's to be freely given, and that the people who do the ministering don't uh, receive those, uh, the benefits of doing that work and, and putting those materials out to teach and encourage the brethren. And the thing is, is that anyone who ever works in ministry, we have our own families to take care of. We have our own uh, situations, that lives that, that we need to be taken care of if that has become our full-time job. Now, when it comes to, yes, the teaching of Scripture, we all are equal heirs to the Word. We all have an equal opportunity to receive the blessings of the Lord and to, and, and to be blessed by what the Scripture has to offer and by the keeping of the commandments. Yes. But there are also those, and there's disciples, and there's judges, and there are, are, are uh, ministers that do this work, do this labor, just like the priests of the altar, 
and that they too have their own livelihood that they need to be taken care of. Now, there's a couple of ways we can go about this. One, Paul here, he's at the end of this passage is talking about that it's all like, look, I, I can actually offer these things free of charge and actually step away because my reward's in heaven. My reward is, and, and that's what I can do. And if he ha is able to do that, and if he has to do that to prove himself in the, in the face of somebody who might be arguing with him in the role and the, and the work and the ministry that he does, well then, you know, if he's able to do that, then he's saying that he will. But ultimately, he still is also making the argument, look, the, the do not muzzle out the ox that treads out the grain. Do not do good to the household of faith. Do good to those that labor for the kingdom and labor to do something good for you. And there's a balance to be struck in all of this. Yeah, have people used the gospel message and the teaching of the word and scripture uh, to their own gain? to their own benefit in all different kinds of ways and manners to, to abuse the flock, to abuse the, the, the people and the, and the people that minister and the people who donate and the people who do all of these things. Has that been abused before? Yes, yes it has, unfortunately, by shepherds who mislead the flock and who, who, who fleece the flock. There are also those that minister out of their heart and have a desire truly to see restoration come to God's people and to see hearts and lives changed for the betterment of their lives to turn their lives over to the Lord and to follow Him. And that we all are laboring in different ways and different capacities. And so ultimately, it takes the spirit of a person to say and to wonder, is that person giving me a benefit? Is that person worth their wages? Because it also says in 1 Timothy 5.18, it says that a laborer is worth his wage. It's worth his wage. If you have somebody that's coming and helping you to fix a door or some other uh, carpentry work, you would pay the man an hourly wage for whatever it is that he would work. We don't argue about that. And so then are you somehow saying that somebody that would uh, speak something teach something, put together some sort of written material or work or recorded message that if they put that together, that then it is uh, that they, they're not worth their wage and the work that they put in as well? Should every self-help book simply be free because it's giving uh, of, of some intellectual idea that benefits you? We can sit there and sit there and argue. It's like, okay, well, we should charge it for secular things, but, but not for uh, spiritual instruction especially when you talk about people that have invested their lives into studying and work and the labor that they do. Now, I'm not sitting here trying to, as a, somebody who works in ministry, I'm not sitting here and trying to argue for the point that, oh, absolutely, you, you, always, you, you have to pay your ministers and you have to do this. No, I'm asking the, the, the people and I'm asking for the people to hear the heart of the matter and to decide and let the Spirit lead you in what is worth donating for or what is worth paying for. You always hear the phrase, you know, put your money where your mouth is. If you, if, you, if you say, if you're just giving lip service to say, oh man, that's really good, that's really good. And if you're passionate about it and if you believe it, shouldn't you invest in it? Not only with your time, with your energy, but sometimes with your money as well. We do this all the time in our day-to-day -day lives. We invest money in things that we're passionate about, even to our entertainment value, our, uh, you know, got to buy a new book, got to go see a movie, got to go to a sporting event. And we put money into things that we want to invest in. Why wouldn't you invest into the faith? Why wouldn't you invest into a ministry that ministers to you and blesses you? That's what we should do, and we should be encouraged to do so. I always endeavor 
to ask that it be a stirring of your heart to donate. If you've ever heard me ask for a donation here on this broadcast or anywhere else, I'm always asking that it's the Lord who stirs in your spirit to donate. That the Lord tells you what to do. I'm not, I don't want to tell you what to donate, exactly how much money or this. or Let the Lord and the Spirit be the one that guides you to take care of those that do the work and do good to the household of faith. If you're not blessed by a certain teaching, teacher or broadcast or ministry, well then yes, there's no obligation for you to donate or, or, or uh, uh, you know, give any financial benefit to them. But if you are blessed, if you are encouraged, if you are strengthened, whatever that is worth, whatever that's worth in your spirit and in your heart or in your mind, then I ask that you would share with, out of the, the blessings that you've been given and bless those who have blessed you. That's ultimately what God says that He will do for all people and through the gospel according to Abraham that all the people of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So bless those that bless you just as the Lord does. So if that stirs in your heart in any way, shape, or form, that's how I would encourage you on this Sabbath day. All right, one of the other uh, sections, passages of our Torah portion talks a great deal about the laws of divorce. The commandments are given to the children of Israel that if a man desires or finds any uncleanness in his wife, that he can give her a certificate of divorce and that divorce is a thing according to Scripture. It's something that can be done. It can be done appropriately for one reason, if there's a certain reason that requires a marriage covenant to be ceased that there is stipulations in the scripture for divorce. Now, obviously, these, this is a point of contention, always has been a point of contention with all of mankind, always will be a point of contention in mankind when we're simply talking about a subject of contention. Divorce, the separation of a married couple, ones that made a covenant, committed to one another that they were going to be together forever, and then the covenant must be broken. Here's, I want to start by saying this. When it comes to covenants that we make man to man, from one person to another person, we truly don't understand the strength and the power of what a covenant should be. We, can, we talk about a marriage covenant and we see all the ceremonies and the establishment of marriage, but ultimately we in our Western culture, Western world, and as human beings do not truly embrace what a covenant is meant to be. A covenant is that relationship, that unification between two people that is an agreement. There can be strong covenants. There can be weak covenants. There could be a marriage covenant that was simply not a very strong covenant. Depending on the number of ceremonies that were done at the actual service, if there is a couple that gets together, they get married, and all they do is just go to the justice of the peace, sign a piece of paper, and legally they're married. And if they weren't really to do much of anything else, you can sit there and question, it's like, is this a strong covenant? Now, if they have a huge degree of love between them and all of this, this interpersonal relationship and ceremonies they do with one another that confirms this covenant of marriage that they have, then they can have a strong covenant, but to an outside observer, they might think, hey, maybe it's not that strong of a covenant. You can also have all of those ceremonies in place and show, man, these people really love each other. Look at, the, look at how beautiful their ketubah is. And look at how beautiful that first dance was. And look at the, the, the friends and the family around them and look how happy they are. And then they go back home and they're miserable. And they don't truly have that, that spiritual bond and that connection between them. And you sit there and it's all like, well, gee, what is a covenant then? What is a covenant if it's not the ceremony and the contract and the signing of it, 
then then is it that it, it, at its core, it's that true relationship between another person. And as human beings, we make covenants all the time. We break covenants all the time. We just don't, we don't make the commitment. We're non-committal as people to just say, this is what I will do. This is what I said I will do, and this is what I will do, and I will do it. God says that. God says what He has planned and what He has purposed, He will do. He stands by His word when He speaks it. Us human beings, we just don't. We don't. We we fail to do these things. And so when a marriage breaks up, it is tragic because marriage is the closest physical covenant that we can uh, determine or see or experience that is the closest thing to truly the covenant between God and mankind. That's why marriage is so heartbreaking when it breaks up. Ultimately, when covenants break between human beings, it's not surprising, unfortunately. It's extremely common for these covenants to be broken. But the whole idea is what, that what we should learn from any covenant we make as human beings is that we understand and relate it to the covenant relationship that our Creator has made with His creation, which is the greatest covenant that has ever taken place. Without it, we wouldn't be here. And we always want our trying to achieve that oneness with the Lord to seek His ways, His plans, His purposes, what that covenant is, following His commandments, loving Him, living as we should live with Him, not just living a temporal life, but an eternal life with Him. That's covenant. That's the heart of all religious (laughs) theological ideas of trying to figure out who God is. So when we see now about marriage, that's why it's so tragic. Because it's, a, it's that closest physical example that we can have to the spiritual covenant that we have with God. The Messiah talked about this in Matthew chapter 5. It seems like Matthew chapter 5 is always one of our Brit Hadashah passages. Um, but there was actually a couple of verses here that we hadn't uh, addressed yet here in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. So at verse 31, the Messiah said this. He says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. It's like he, the Messiah has really taken this to another step further when it comes to the commandment that says, yeah, you can give a certificate of divorce. It says so in Deuteronomy, if a man finds uncleanness with her, uh, give her a certificate of divorce. But the Messiah is sitting here and saying, um, yeah, except for one case right here, I say you're committing adultery if you do that. It's like, okay, that's some stronger language and some stronger verbiage. So what is the Messiah really trying to teach us? Well, let's go now also to Matthew chapter 19, parallel passage in Mark chapter 10, where he is teaching us about marriage and divorce and continues to expound on this idea. So here, beginning at verse 3, it says, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to him, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. 
And I said to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her and who is, div- uh, who is divorced commits adultery. And his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, is it better to not marry? And then he continues on and he actually then gives and, and promotes the idea of celibacy, that it might be uh, important for you to then to not be married because people who have committed their life to not being married and not having sexual intercourse can also be those that serve the kingdom and serve at the, for the sake of the kingdom and serve in ministry as well. So he continues on the, this argument. So, But let's go back to the idea about marriage because I, I think most people in their life don't think to themselves, you know what, that is definitely the way to go. I'm not going to marry anybody and I'm going to live a life of celibacy in service to the Lord. We see that there is a great deal of blessing that can come from marriage. The the relationship that you can have, that you can build, we're we're ingrained in in our lives physiologically to desire to be with someone and we're not meant for us to be alone as it says in the very beginning. And the Messiah there is quoting all the way back to Genesis where it's talking about that you, you, you shall leave your father and mother and be joined to one flesh. This is how marriage was established from the very beginning. Marriage was part of the creation. This joining of two to, to, to then become one flesh. And this is a very beautiful thing. So let's keep our focus on that particular subject rather than the, the other direction we could go. It again is going back to the idea that it's about the covenant relationship that is established. It's about the fact that, that he, he said from the, I told Moses that you could give divorce. You're right. I, that, that is what it says that Moses said. That's what the Messiah is saying. He said, but from the very beginning, that was not so. That means that there's a precedent by which some of the things in the commandments that were, have been given to us through Moses and through the law have been given to us basically to help us to get through life. But ultimately, these are things that were necessary because we're not in the garden. If we were in the garden, there'd be a whole lot of things that were changed. If there was no sin that was brought into the world, there'd be a lot of things that were different. But because sin has been brought into the world, that's why we have a necessity for the law. There would be no law necessary for divorce if there was no sin. If there never was adultery, if there never was uh, uh, somebody being unfaithful or being unkind or any other commandment that uh, that is broken that causes somebody to despise another, if there was no sin, there'd be no reason for divorce. Then when you get married, everything would be great. And marriage is not against the commandments. So... So the, the whole reason why we have the commandment from Moses is because there is sin. Of course there's sin. We're going to have to deal with sin. But ultimately, if you're trying to live a sinless lifestyle, this should never be a question. It really shouldn't. If you choose to get married, then if you live a sinless lifestyle, and if your partner is a, lives a sinless lifestyle, then there is no reason for you to ever be divorced. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Let your commitments and your vows stand for all time so that you hold yourself and you keep your word just as God keeps his word. And that's how you get closer to God. That's how you prove in in at least one area of your life that you are trying to be holy as God is holy. In that, at least that one area that you are committed to your spouse because you have made a vow for you to be in a covenant relationship with them. So don't get divorced. Don't. Now, there is sin. Yes, there is sin. And and the Messiah acknowledges. Yes. But it's because of the hardness of your hearts that I had to give you 
a, a commandment and allow you to give a certificate of divorce. It's because of the hardest of hearts that I, you need to do that. It goes back to the need for the covenant. Can we just make a covenant? where our yes is yes, where our no is no, and that we can get, that our physical relationships with our spouses could reflect the spiritual relationship we have with God. I guarantee you, if you can, if you can, can work your marriage to resemble the relationship between God and the children of Israel and God and all of creation and mankind, then you're going to be good. Because God is good. God is good to His creation. He loves His creation. He loves the children of Israel. He will not leave them. He will not forsake them. He will remember His covenant no matter what they do. And He's going to continue to love them. And if you can keep that going, and if you can say the same of your spouse, even forgiving their sins, even for even forgiving them of the things that they do, and still maintain that covenant relationship, well, then now, now we're getting somewhere. Now the words of what God is and what, who, who He is is now impacting your life to be, forgiven, to, to be forgiving, to be holy, to be gracious as the Lord is holy. Now we are human beings. Some of us struggle with doing that. I'm not saying that, uh, that you know, if, if, if there's a married couple that's going through some issues right now and there's somebody that did something or committed some sort of sin that, is, that really hurt the other person, that I'm not counseling the other person to say, you know what, you got to suck it up and you just got to forgive them because the, the hurt, every situation is different. The hurt is different for each person. And that, uh, so, so don't, don't think that I'm standing here and saying that's exactly what you have to do. But until the Lord and His Spirit moves in your heart to, to get to that point, then don't feel that you're forced to do that because that's how the Scripture is. Look, we break covenants all the time. It's, it's sad, it's, it's tragic, but there are some times that a covenant that was put together falls apart, and it's better for all people that the covenant dissolve. Sometimes covenants end. Sometimes covenants only have a certain period of time that they're uh, actually stipulated to, to uh, uh, last for. And it's like an in the vows of marriage. And if somebody says in the vow of marriage, I prefer you above all others. And if that person breaks that part of the covenant and they instead prefer somebody else or something else over the person that they committed and vowed to do it, then they have broken their vow of marriage. They've broken that aspect of the covenant. That is, we have to recognize that and understand that. In no way am I promoting divorce. But, but, but in the case of the, the establishment of human covenants, look, we have sin, and that's the reason why there's divorce. And there's stipulations in the Scripture that allow for that to be the case. If we all have our hearts tuned to the Spirit of the Lord, if we all are, are really um, following the teachings of the Messiah through all of this, then we wouldn't need it. But in the world we live in today, we do. So I hope that that might encourage you in whatever situation you might be in, or if you've ever seen somebody get divorced and it was tragic, or you saw somebody get divorced and suddenly both people were, were more happy and blessed and, and, and had the Spirit of the Lord inside of them, and more so because they're apart than when they were together. Sometimes that happens. The whole key is to seek the Father through all of it and know that even if you see a broken covenant between human beings, that we know that, you know what, that covenant just didn't measure up to the covenant that we have with the Lord. Let's keep our focus on our covenant with the Lord and continue 
to pursue what a true relationship and covenant with our fellow brethren should look like as well. There's another passage that is uh, parallel to our Torah portion also, then uh, that is in Luke chapter 20. And this is when the Messiah was questioned about the, uh, specifically about the resurrection is what, is a, what it is about, where um, he was questioned about from the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection, who then questioned him about like, okay, so there's the, uh, the, the commandment and the stipulation of, if a man marries a woman and then uh, he dies before producing a son, that it's the brother of that man that is supposed to then marry the wife and then produce an heir for the sake of his brother. And so they used this argument and this question and they posed it in a way basically to question the resurrection itself. And so the question they asked him and they said, Teacher, Moses wrote to us, and this is in uh, chapter uh, verse 28 of Luke chapter 20, and they said, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man brothers dies having a wife and he dies without children, a brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. And there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her as a wife and died childless. And the third took her and in the same manner, like the, and the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died too. Therefore, at the resurrection, whose wife should she become? For all seven had her as a wife. And Yeshua answers to him and says, the sons of this age marry and, given, and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age of the resurrection from the dead neither marry or are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they're equal to angels and sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the, death, the dead are raised when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for all live to him. And some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Again, this argument is the Sadducees trying to give this pointed uh, discussion about the resurrection. They're saying they're basically like, oh, when the resurrection comes, they're going to try to trip you up as to who this wife and who the woman belongs to. When ultimately the Lord, he's uh, the, the Messiah, he's above all of this instruction. And he says, look, you guys are asking this question. And in this age, sons are marrying and giving in marriage all the time. You guys think about this and talk about this all the time about the giving of marriage and, and, and all of these different things. But this is not about, this, uh, God is the God of the living not the God of the dead. So we need to make sure that we're not taking this argument and this discussion about the marriage because the commandment actually is very clear if you go back and it's like, I love that the Messiah actually didn't answer this so simply because look, the child was for the son that died, the original one. That's the whole reason for it. It's mercy upon the brother who, so that he might have an heir. And again, it, all of this was always going back to the original son. That's the purpose of that. But that's obviously not the purpose of this discussion, because we want to make sure that we aren't justifying and using something as powerful as the covenant of marriage to somehow justify something else that we might believe. See, what happens is this is the same thing where people take parts of the scripture and they try to justify it and lay it upon their own life to then say, this is how something should be. Uh, this, I might use the same argument anytime somebody might suggest polygamy being something that is uh, something that we should do as believers because look at our patriarchs or look at our, our, fa our father Jacob and the number of wives that he had. 
and that when you look at Scripture, very specifically, is uh, polygamy um, specifically argued against in, in the Scripture? And no, there's not a specific argument there, but it does say a lot of things about how, you know, the, the one who is an elder in the city, the one who is a teacher, or who is a, a, a leader amongst us, he should be the husband of one wife, not have multiple wives. And that, we, that the old idea of covenant marriage, that two should become one flesh, is a concept that really is that simple, to become one flesh, not a whole bunch of others come together and, and form this marriage or this covenant. And every covenant that is ever made, marriage covenant, it's made in the Western world by the vows you say you're going to prefer your spouse above all others. That means not adding somebody else in. So some I've seen people use the scripture to justify breaking their own vows of marriage to establish a polygamous marriage, which is completely wrong and completely false and is a twisting of the scripture to somehow get you to have the opportunity to marry and give in marriage when, and and it's very, you, there's no defense that you have that's going to say that, well, you simply want to be married to another person. It's not the argument that you want to make. And that we should not be twisting the scripture to match what we want to believe and how we want to follow it. So that's what I have to say about that particular passage of scripture. Last thing I want to talk about is this, going back to the beginning of the Torah portion, Deuteronomy chapter 21, at the end of the chapter in verses 22 and 23, we talk about he that hangs on a tree is cursed. We have the commandment and the instruction that if a man is, is hung on a tree, that he's not to remain there that he, because it would bring a curse upon the land, and that the, he who hangs on a tree is cursed. If there is not, I, I dare say there is not a greater um, parallel, there's not a greater uh, teaching that connects to, or verse that connects to the Messiah and what he did for us, than this one right here, where it says, he that hangs on a tree is cursed in the, in the, in the scripture, the Messiah was hung on a cursed on a tree, and he was cursed, and he bore our curses because of what he did. If we now go to Galatians, to chapter three, we have the instruction being uh, given to us again by Paul, speaking to this exact very thing, beginning at verse. Uh, uh, let's begin at verse uh, nine. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in this book of the law to do them. We're going to bring that back up again in a couple of weeks as the Torah portions continue. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall, li the just shall live it by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Messiah Yeshua, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is elaborating on the whole fact and the whole idea that this is what Yeshua did for us. He bore the curse of the law. Is the law a curse upon us? Yes, if we don't do that. If we don't keep the commandments of God, then curses will come upon us. Bad things will happen to us. We won't receive the blessing. And we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have committed sin. All have broken the Torah. So we need a payment. We need somebody who will take that and pay that price for us. And so he was cursed by hanging on the tree. 
There's also another passage, I'm running out of time, but the passage talking about when Yeshua cursed the fig tree on the road from Bethany to Jerusalem, somewhere on the Mount of Olives, and he walked by and he cursed this fig tree. And he used that example as a, uh, as a teaching for the disciples to say, whatever you say, whatever you do, if you command a mountain to move, to ha- then you can have the faith that the mountain will move. And when you say, cursed are you, this fig tree, that you can have the faith that it will be done because the, the uh, disciples were astonished when they saw that the fig tree had withered away. And it's a nice little lesson for us to learn what we can say and what we can believe and speak into existence with the power of our faith. The other thing I believe about that tree, though, that that fig tree, was that it was somewhere on the Mount of Olives, and suddenly there was this tree one by the road on the way to Bethany, and then suddenly it was withered away, and suddenly there's this stump of a tree there. And that when the Messiah actually was sent to be crucified, taken somewhere on the Mount of Olives because um, because of the testimony of the centurion and, and what they could see and observe happening in Jerusalem during the crucifixion, that it had to been somewhere on the Mount of Olives, and that also Roman crucifixion always took place on a road so that visitors and travelers could see it and fear Roman imperialism. And the fact that the Messiah cursed some tree along the road somewhere on the Mount of Olives that that may have been the exact place where the Messiah was crucified himself. That he prepared his own execution stake and stood there and, and, was, and was hung on a tree that had been cursed. Not only was he cursed hanging on a tree, but the tree itself was cursed. And that he was paying the price for our sins that we have committed in, for all time. And that that's what the, the, what the payment that he made. And he took that curse upon us. We can read in Scripture and we can say, Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. But we can stand here in the modern world with a testimony and belief in Yeshua the Messiah and say, He has taken the curse that I should have paid, that, I, that should have been done to me. And he, he, and he knew it and He did it voluntarily because of the covenant that He has with His creation and the covenant that He made with our father Abraham and the covenant that He made with all of us that through, uh, through His seed all the families of the earth will be blessed and that God loves us so much that that's what He's willing to do to keep the covenant that we have together. And that's ultimately what we have to teach one another is that if you truly are in covenant with somebody, you would lay down your life for them. The Messiah teaches us that. And that there are those that in marriages and in families that know and understand that if I truly love my family and love those around me who and who I'm in covenant with, that I would lay down my life for them, bearing the iniquity, bearing the curses, and doing whatever I have to do to show the love and the covenant that I have. So that is what I would have to say, and that's my short teaching on cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Amen? Let us... Uh, Close with a word of prayer and uh, let us uh, finish out the Sabbath for this week. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for everything that you do in our lives. We thank you for your teaching and instruction. Father, there's so many words and passages in Scripture we can talk about, stories of old that can encourage us and strengthen us. Father, I pray that we would be blessed on this Sabbath. Give us the rest and the refreshment that we need in everything that we do and uh, in all the ways that uh, we follow you and keep your commandments. Bless the people, Lord. May we be rested and refreshed on this Sabbath day. And Father, we love you. We bless you and we thank you. We thank you for the covenant that we have with you. And Father, may we continue to learn to be holy as you are holy and act as you act toward us, Lord, and show the same love you have for us to our fellow brethren as well. We bless you and thank you on this Sabbath day. In Yeshua's name, amen. Shabbat shalom. Yivrechecha Adonai
May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.